Please remain standing as we read the passage for today's message found in John chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. <clears throat> now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria, so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this well will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You were right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one that you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming. When neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. But Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? 
they went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told them all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of this word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Let us pray. Father, that's a long passage and a lot of information. In fact, it's the longest discourse that Jesus had with any one particular human while he ministered on this earth. But we look forward now to uh, Dan explaining, expounding upon this passage. And I pray that you would help him, that your spirit would guide him to share the message that you have put on his heart and that we would be the, the beneficiaries of that. We thank you for your word. We thank you that you've revealed yourself in our Lord and Savior Jesus. And we thank you that he continues you continue to reveal us yourself to us through your written, written word. And we give you thanks for that that we have read this morning. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning. It's an absolute pleasure to be with you. <clears throat> thankful for uh, the opportunity to share the word. We pray that the Vandermosses are getting some well-needed R&R. And I would say some sunshine, but we've been blessed over the past few days to have some of that West Michigan haze burn off and get sunshine. What a beautiful morning to share the word. And that's a long passage, so don't fear. We could almost say this is the word of the Lord and be done already. But there is a lot here. There's so much here. And when you ask a teacher to preach, this is what you get. So I will try to do my best. I do believe those are distinct vocations. And uh, we could probably be here for three or four weeks to unpack all of the context and interesting theological dialogue that is going on here. My uh, outline today is very simple. It's past it's present, and it's future. 
So those are the three points we will be touching. And I'm thankful to be continuing this series of flocking to Jesus. And Andrew has done a wonderful job of bringing passages to mind and preaching over the last few weeks about what it means and, and, and showing stories about what it means to being connected, understand, and see how Jesus taught and discipled and brought others to him. And this is just another long line. Yet, uh, last week we heard Nicodemus in John chapter 3, and this week it's continuing. And story, biblical stories are interesting. How many of you, by a raise of hands, have heard a sermon, a teaching, or something along the lines on the Samaritan woman? How many of you heard it, right? This is a very familiar passage. But today I hope there will be something new, a little enlightenment, maybe some context that adds a little more breadth and depth to this story. I remember growing up, I had the privilege of growing up in a Christian home, and uh, we had missionaries and people in our home all the time for meals. Um, my father uh, was an elder in, in the church we grew up in, and so we, we just had a great um, interaction with a whole host of different kinds of people. And uh, I remember my moral imagination is alive. I can see my dining room as a child where we would have often on furlough a woman, a single woman, who dedicated her life to the country of Cameroon. And every time she came on furlough every few years, uh, we would at least have her over for lunch once or twice. And then eventually she retired from the, the field and taught uh, Sunday school uh, religiously for the young people until her death. In, our, in my home church. And this is where I first heard Mark 1 um, in the, and they used flannel graph. How many of you are old enough to remember flannel graph, right? And I literally with my mind's eye can see her putting the boat and the disciples and Jesus and you know kind of like walking, you know. This was, be, this was before we catechized our kids with vegetable stories. Um... I'm not sure which one is better or worse, but uh, I'll leave that up to you. Um, but I remember her teaching, and, and as a child, I, I remember this, and maybe, maybe she wasn't teaching it this way, but I remember it being taught this way, that that was the first time the disciple, and, and, and Andrew covered this several weeks ago, that this isn't how it is. But when Jesus was on the shore, and he says, come and follow me, and they immediately dropped their nets and followed him. You remember this from Mark. I assumed that that was the first time that the disciples had ever followed Jesus or ever seen him or ever and it was almost like they were robots Jesus comes says follow me and they're like yes and they drop their nets and follow him and that, that this is how I remember it and I'm sure some of you maybe have that in your mind's eye or were taught that way and that's just chronologically untrue they had been with Jesus m many of those disciples had been with Jesus for months beforehand and they had gone back to their nets to their fishing for several months and we're contemplating all and so John is actually where we first find the calling of the disciples John 1 2 3 and 4 is a very unique place is where the disciples many of the disciples first meet Jesus and just like I had to kind of rewire and relearn wasn't until Bible college I really started to think about that differently that I hope for the Samaritan woman, we can rewire a few things and think about her story a little differently. Jesus is, as Andrew said last week, someone so very different than us. Theologians call this the creator-creature distinction. 
We are creatures. We are created beings by a God who is wholly other than us. And yet he deemed to send his son into the world, into the mess, for our salvation. And so I'm going to talk a little bit about the past and present and future of the story in John chapter 4. So some of the context, number one, past. We need to know some context of what is going on here. In verse 4-4, we read that he must, he needed, he must go through, he needed to go through Samaria. The Samaritan Jewish cultural and theological clash of identities is the main idea in this story. It's not another theme we'll get to in a moment. The major thing is the clash between the theological and cultural identity of what it means to be a Samaritan or a Jew. That is the big idea here. And the Samaritan and Jewish culture clash was very deep. We have ethnic clashes in our own country currently that go hundreds of years old. But yet, we see back in Genesis 33 that Jacob purchased the land near Shechem and they dug a well. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years ago. The tradition goes very deep. And they were at the well that they dug. It wasn't until... Uh, I mean, I have a tight family. I love my family very much. And we, we travel to see my grandparents a lot. And, but it wasn't until, and, and my, Julie and I, we've, my jobs have taken me around the country. In fact, we won the, I think one of our Christmas elder parties, they're like, they, they were doing some fun games. And they're like, how many states have you lived in? And I won that by like double. And so my wife and I have kind of done a tour of the West Coast, boom, and all the way back to Michigan. But when we came to Michigan, it took me a year or two to really understand the Dutch tradition. I mean, there are traditions of family. There are traditions of going up north. There are, I mean, just, I mean, all the traditions. Um, I hadn't, uh, I'm Danish and English by uh, uh, my background, and, uh, and so understanding the, the, the deep and concentrated traditions here was fascinating. The Jewish and the Samaritan traditions are hundreds and hundreds, almost millennia deep. And it goes back to 2 Kings 17, the Assyrian conquest, if you remember your Old Testament studies, and the Samaria was resettled when the Jews were taken uh, out Samaria was resettled and there were some Jews that stayed not every single Jew was taken in the conquest so there was some intermarriage there was some filling filling in of that area with people who worshiped um, the gods of the region so if you go back to 2nd Kings 17 you can read that whole story it's fascinating the king of Assyria realized he needed to backfill all the people he was taking out of that very um, lush region. And then you have the captivity story, but then you have the post-captivity. And if you remember Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel wants to come back and build the what? Rebuild. 
the temple, the walls, and, and he, he wants to come back. And you read in Ezra 4, the Samaritans actively wrote letters to King Ahasuerus, and they wrote back and they said, we do not want them to rebuild. They rebuffed with sword, they rebuffed with political letter, they rebuffed with all the diplomatic thoughts, and then finally the king wrote back and he said, yeah, I agree with you, that probably sounds kind of bad. That's Dan's version. And they honestly kept them from rebuilding for quite a long time. The Samaritans put up a strong resistance to the Jews coming back and inheriting the land. And we could go on and on with examples like this of how the Samaritans and the Jews, and eventually the Samaritan people, they moved away from Baal worship and other of the false gods, and they believed, they were kind of, they turned into kind of a hybrid Jewish sect. And they believed in the, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. They had their own version of the Ten Commandments, fairly close. But the last commandment was worshiping on Mount Gerizim, which comes up in this passage. And they believed in no other text. They had an oral history, but not any more text. They didn't believe in any of the Old Testament other than the Pentateuch. But they were kind of this hybrid Jewish sect. And they were called unclean by the Jews. Um, And eventually... They traced their, their lineage all the way back to the uh, priest of Eli. And there were tensions consistently for hundreds of years. But as you know, in most, people are pragmatic. And you might have heard that the Jews never had any interactions with the Samaritans. In fact, the Samaritan woman kind of tries to reinforce that in the text. Well, historically, we, we know that that's not true. So the, the pragmatism of the age, the Samar- there were Jews that would walk through Samaria. It's like, not like it never happened. There were Jews that would eat the food prepared by Samaritans, like we see the disciples going into the town to get food later. We know historical record, the pragmatism of the age, that did happen. It wasn't encouraged necessarily, but it wasn't discouraged. It just was like, nah, you probably shouldn't. If you could do something else, do that. But it happened. So they tried to figure out how to live together. In fact, we, there's historical record of, from Josephus of Samaritans coming and worshiping during Passover in Jerusalem. And so there's, there's some pragmatism going on historically here in reality. And so this, this tension, what, it, what we're seeing from the Samaritan, this hybrid sect and Jesus, this is the tension that's being brought to the stage here. And Jesus must go through Samaria. And why must he go? I want to bring, um, bring the idea of what we find in John 1.39. We are in the present. Let's fast forward. That's the past. That's the context. Fast forward to point number two, the present where Jesus is coming into Samaria with his disciples. But we have to set the stage here contextually as well. In John 1.39, we see that um, the disciples are first called to Jesus. Again, chronologically, this predates Mark. 
and he's calling his disciples and in verse 39 he says to them first they ask you know where are you staying we perceive you're a teacher where, where are you staying and he says in verse 39 come and see come and see and the disciples by name come and then then they tell some of their friends and their brothers and their half and, and they come and begin to follow Jesus at this stage in John chapter 1 and I want to say much of this passage is come and see look with me what they see in the first four months of interacting with Jesus and again the idea of following or being a disciple of was very common in this era right the rabbinical model we'll get to a little later that I mean followers disciples etc there were a lot of sects in this area we'll see with the Sadducees the Pharisees you have the Romans you have the Jewish people that are in bed with the Roman I mean there, there's a lot of different there's political intrigue that's fascinating throughout this entire passage but Jesus says to his disciples come and see and when they come and see what they see is the wedding at Cana the cleansing of the temple they see the interaction with Nicodemus they see the tension with John the Baptist and his followers and the religious rulers and then they see this interaction with the Samaritan woman this is the first four months this is a four-month period that they are with Jesus that's a lot miracles they see healings they see political intrigue they see John the Baptist who they knew was a prophet and his followers begin to have tension with John the Baptist because they're like look this guy's doing more than you are and that's where we pick up John chapter 4 after one of the most beautiful passages for any leader this is for another pass another time but when John the Baptist's disciples come to him and say, we're hearing that this other guy is becoming more popular than you are. We are with you. You're a disciple. We were following you. You're a fascinating individual. We are with you. We're your disciples. And these other guys are becoming more popular. There truly is, as the Ecclesiast writer of Ecclesiastes says, nothing new under the sun. We still do this in our age. And John the Baptist says, I have been testifying of the Christ from day one. You haven't been listening. And then he says this famous short verse that every leader in any context would be good to dwell on. And that is this. He must increase and I must decrease. Let that sink in for a while. He must increase and I must decrease. And that's how John the Baptist deals with his disciples' fervor. And so, verse 1, 4, 1, Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, it's a personality cult. They're jealous. I love it. I am he, you know, right? We are these people. We do this to this day. Though Jesus himself did not baptize, but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee. At this moment, Jesus didn't want any conflict, so he left. That's the context of which he is leaving to go up to Galilee, and he must go through Samaria. And here he meets this woman. 
And I love the passage where it says, why is Jesus at the well? Because of his humanity. He's tired. This links to Hebrews, right? He, there's, he, he can understand what it means to be human. He's tired. They've been walking a long time. It's roughly noon. And they stop at the, at the well. And here's this woman at the well. And here's where I want to try to disabuse you just for a moment of the idea that this passage is about the woman's husband. It's not. Sexuality is not the core of this talk. And this is the minority view. The majority view, we can trace it through history. Many people think that that is what this is about. And I'm here to argue, to think with you, to prod and provoke you, to say this is not what this is about. It's about the tension, the identity between the Samaritan and Jew. That's the story going on here. Because she, right out of the gate, says, Why do you, he asked her for a drink, why do you, a Jew, ask me for a drink? So she starts out by identifying him. Clearly, you're a Jew. Who was this woman? She was older. We can assume that. Because much of what we think we know about her are arguments from silence. If you're familiar with hermeneutics, the idea of when some, we, we got to be very careful to, to read into text what is or isn't there. And many of what we know about her are arguments from silence. We, we don't know. But the length of her, if she's had five marriages, she's living with a person who isn't her husband, that, those take time. Young girls were married uh, roughly 14 years old. Kind of 13 to 15 was the prime age of them being married at this moment. So she was probably in her late 30s, early 40s. At that point, that was an older woman. She was educated because she knew the theological arguments and interactions of the day. She listened. She was a part of theological, cultural conversation. She knew how to interact with Jesus. But she had obviously had a difficult life because she was at the well by herself. The noonday thing is actually less important. People are like, she was there at noon, and women usually came in the morning and at night. And there's only a verse or two in Scripture that give any kind of credence to that. And the historical record at the moment, people came to the well all the time for water. The more interesting fact is that she was there and not a servant. So she went through all of these marriages. And what I learned in my study, I had never fully understood this, that a dowry... Remember, the, the wife's parents paid a dowry for the husband to marry the, do, the, 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 the daughter. And that dowry was actually, it served legally in Roman law and Jewish law as kind of a life insurance policy. In other words, if there was a divorce, that money was supposed to be held in trusts. And then that woman on her divorce would get that money back. Fascinating. The economic and, and just the in, intertanglements of the Roman and Jewish law is fascinating. And so we don't know. This woman had gone through multiple marriages, dowry obviously lost. She doesn't have servants because they would obviously be at the water at the well. And so here is where we come to very, very John is very good with this. The writer of John with the rich symbolism and imagery in this passage. You come to the well... And the well signifies, for many in the Old Testament, 
the place where you find a mate. Do you remember Genesis and Exodus? There are over five times where specific people meet their mate at, the, at a well. There's consistent imagery here. Um, just three, Isaac's matchmaker, if you remember that, finds Rebecca by a well in Genesis 24. Jacob meets Rachel by a well, Genesis 29. Moses meets Zipporah by the well, Exodus 2. And we could go on. So there's this image we miss if we don't understand the context, the Jewish context, and some of what has been read back into this passage. The well is a symbol of, of marriage, of, of community. And he meets this Samaritan woman. And he says, give me a drink. And, he, and Jesus answered, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you, what? Living Water, another major symbol for the Jewish people. Living water. Living water is seen uh, in Proverbs, all throughout Proverbs, over a dozen times. The idea of water and living water is wisdom, and the fear of the Lord is likened to living water. In John 7, they associate living water flowing from the believer with the power of the Holy Spirit. God is seen as the spring of living water in Jeremiah 2. These ideas of living water, the phrases he's using are rich and drip with symbolism. And he's like, if you would recognize who I am, I'm the living water. These are phrases that she should be picking up on in, as she's listening. And the woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with. Where's your pot? The well's deep. Where can I get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? Remember tradition? They're camped around here. Their, their traditions and roots go really deep. And she's visioning through her roots, through her tradition. Are you greater than Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself and his sons and his life? It's given us life. This well has been the pivot point of our community. And Jesus says, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I give him will become like him, in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. He doubles down on the imagery of living water. And she says, sir, I want this water. And Jesus says, then go and call your husband and come here. And the woman says simply, I have no husband. And Jesus says, you have, well said, you have no husband. Now this is where I think the story goes off the rails for many preachers. Because Jesus says, for you have had five husbands, and for one whom you now have is not your husband. In that, you've spoken truly. And what does she say? What does she say? Sir, I perceive you're a prophet. It's like standing in line at family fair, wherever you Costco, wherever you shop, having a random conversation with somebody, very brief, and then they tell you all you have ever done. How many of you would like your secrets unpacked by a, by a person you don't, a foreigner, 
a person who kind of culturally, religiously is your opposite, and a stranger. And they're like, mm, yeah, I perceive this. And I think, I believe from this text what we've seen, this is the longest sustained dialogue with any person by Jesus. In fact, if you saw Nicodemus, and, and Pastor Andrew alluded to this last week, there's kind of a dialogue, about five verses of a dialogue, and then it turns into a monologue, or almost to a soliloquy. We're not, I mean, it, and it, Jesus just talking. Here there is back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And it's the longest one in the entire New Testament, and it's with a woman, a Samaritan woman, who's alone. There's power in this symbolism, too. So the idea, he doesn't condemn her sin in other places throughout the New Testament. And even in John, with the adulterous woman later on, I believe it's 7 or 9, he, he, he clearly claims the sin. He talks about repentance. There's nothing of that in this passage. Nothing about sin, nothing about repentance. He just, as a prophet, says, you have said wisely. And he shows her. And so in verse 9, you have her say, why would you a Jew? So she calls him a Jew first. And then in verse 19, what I like is 9, 19, and 29. 9, you're a Jew. 29, or 19, you're a prophet. Her eyes are becoming open. He's answering her questions. He's interacting with her on a theological level. He's respecting her humanity. He respects what she knows. Even though he disagrees with it, he un and we'll see that very pointedly in a moment, he respects who she is. And the woman says, sir, I perceive you're a prophet. And then she immediately goes to one of the major theological claims that differ from the Jews. That's why I wanted to build in, because as we read it, we're like, who cares? She's talking about a mountain. Why, why does this matter? That was one of the main dividing lines between the Samaritans and the Jews religiously. Where do you worship? And she's at the well, and she can point to the mountain. The mountain is right there. So it's very visually stimulating. She's, she's like, we worship right there. Should we worship there? Or I know as you Jews, you worship in Jerusalem. That would be like us saying, we worship Reed's Lake, at Reed's Lake. We, they would all, I mean, yeah, like right there. And Jesus says, Woman, believe me. The hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. He cuts both ways. He says how the Jews are doing it isn't how we need to do it moving forward. How the Samaritans are doing it, we don't need to do it moving forward. He cuts both ways. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. Like it says, he doesn't back down. He takes her questions seriously. But he says, the Jews have the right way, the right angle. They have the right understanding. But then in the next verse, he's like, but that being said, the hour is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. 
And the woman says, I know the Messiah is coming. They were looking for the second Moses. The Messiah word here is translated for our benefit. They wouldn't have used the word Messiah in the Samaritan context. It was more Christ-like figure or second Moses is what they were looking for. So she's well-read. She listens. She understands. She knows her theology and the distinctions between the two. And then Jesus says, what? We're looking for the second Moses who will tell us all things. And Jesus looks at her at the well and says, I who speak to you am he. And this is unfortunate in its verbosity. Because if you know in John, there is no, in Greek, there, there is no word for he. Essentially, what Jesus says to her right here is I am. Does that ring a bell? I am he. I am. Is what he would have literally said. And if we know throughout the book of John, right? The book of I am's. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the gate for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And I am the vine. His language here maps on to what is going on in the rest of the book of John. He's, she's like, I'm looking for the second Moses. We're looking for the second Moses. And he says, I am. One of the most powerful declarations that God himself gives through the mouth of Jesus. And at this point, she believes. And she leaves. And the disciples come on the stage. Remember, they walked into town. There's debate a little bit about how far it was, but it was a good hike. The average human walks four miles a, an hour. And so there was probably like at least an hour transition here in this conversation. There's no sub, subway, you know, sitting at the well. Wendy's or wherever you stop on your road trips, if you do. They go in. It's no, people think like scandalous that they went in. I, I don't believe it's as scandalous. They, they weren't made unclean. They were pragmatists. They, they knew they could go in and get food. Uh, historically, I, I, I don't think we, we, I think we make too much of that. But when they do come back, they say, hmm. And I would love to know the conversation between John and the other disciples after this, where he then could discern that in their mind's eye, even though they didn't say it, they were thinking, what's he doing? Why is he talking with this Samaritan woman? What do you seek? They're thinking it, they don't say it, and then they go to the obvious natural, the koilia, the belly. We have food, we brought food. Your appetite, Lord. And he's like, look, yeah, I am doing the work of the Father. This is what feeds me. Chastises them to a certain degree. He says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and finish his work. Do you not say there are still four months? And again, around them, a very agrarian area. Uh, that Four months come and then the harvest. Behold, I say to you, beautiful passage. I love this phrase. I'm haunted by it. It says, what? Lift up your eyes. In other words, get out of the mundanity, lift up your eyes, and look for the spiritual, look for what's going on, what, the Christ, what Christ is doing. Lift up your eyes. What a reminder that we all need. We need it all the time. I need it. 
I get so bound up in what's going on with work and family and life and balloons over South Carolina and, you know, whatever's going on. And he says, lift up your eyes. And then he introduces us to a very, this really strong imagery that, again, many of us aren't agrarian. We don't understand as strongly as this era would have. But he says, he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life, that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. But here we see Jesus both sowing and reaping at the same time with the Samaritan woman. The Samaritan woman is participating. He preaches, he prophesies, she believes, and she's off to tell the, the, the village and, he's, and, and he says, for in this the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labors. What an encouraging thing. This woman who I mentioned earlier who administered in Cameroon for her entire life, she was just one chain in the arms of people who brought me theological truth. My parents did, people in my church, other, other teachers. I don't know why. I don't, I don't want to make a social commentary. But the three, other than my, my parents, the three strongest teachers I had growing up were women who studied the word, who taught the word consistently, brought Sunday school or youth group lessons that I remember to this very day. Strong women who love God and study the word and know it are needed. Women, I want you to hear me. You are valued and needed. And Christ here is honoring the Samaritan woman's humanity. And he's chastising the disciples, saying, you're, you're thinking about the cultural issues. I want you to think about, lift up your eyes and see what's going on. And this is why John Chrysostom, in verse 39, church father from the late 3rd century, argues that the Samaritan woman was the first apostle. Let that sink in. Ouch. John Chrysostom says, She did apostolic work by announcing the good news to all, calling them to Jesus, and bringing literally the entire city out to meet him yeah there was a change and you remember that era that context the elders would sit at the gates and they would adjudicate all kinds of things legal theological economic and otherwise at the and she goes to them she was a known entity they listened to her even though she's not named that's another interesting thing we know nicodemus but we don't know the name of the Samaritan woman. But we know they listened to her, and they come. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his own word. What a powerful story. That was the present moment, rich with symbolism. And in verses 9, 19, and 29, I think that's the main idea, the core of the passage. Why would you a Jew, she calls him a Jew, oh, I perceive you're a prophet. And then in verse 29, she goes back into the village and says, I think I found the Christ. I found Christ. She testifies 
of his work, his prophetic word to her. And she evangelizes or apostolically says, come and see. Come and see. They do. They get saved. He comes and ministers for several days in their village. And then, and later in Acts, we, the sowing and reaping is continued because we see them going back to Samaria in Acts. But now after two days he departed and there and went to Galilee. For Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. And when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things he did in Jerusalem for the feast. And for they had also been there. So the future for you and I, the past is the context, deep religious, political, cultural identity issues between the Samaritans and the Jews. The present is the contextual moment between Jesus and the woman at the well. And the future, I want to encourage for you and I, is to participate in the sowing and reaping that is referenced here. The concept of lifting up your eyes and identifying who in our sphere needs to flock to Jesus, needs to know Jesus. This era, the idea of being a disciple, we would know the rabbinical mode. The rabbinical mode at age five, they would have a boy come into the rabbi and they would receive him and stuff him with the Torah like an ox. And by age 10, they would have the Torah memorized and they would begin seeking the right questions, not right answers. So they would begin the oral law, the oral interaction, understanding the way of argument. And by age 14, they would have mastered the oral and written law. And by the age 14, the rabbi would choose just one out of his cadre to be like him, to be just like the rabbi and to move the rabbi's ideas forward. Well, the key difference in the Christian walk of discipleship, of finding a disciple, is because in Christianity, we teach Christ and not ourselves. He must increase and I must decrease. What are we doing today to participate in the labors, the sowing and the reaping? I'll close with this. In one of the most beautiful modern sermons, C.S. Lewis, near the end of his sermon, The Weight of Glory which you can find online and read for free. Near the end of this sermon, I think Lewis is hitting on the head what we need to do. Participate with me in lifting up our eyes in this fashion. It may be possible for each to think too much of his own potential glory hereafter, being in heaven. It is hardly possible for him to think too often or too deeply about that of his neighbor. The load or weight or burden of my neighbor's glory should be laid daily on my back, a load so heavy that only humility can carry it, and the backs of the proud will be broken. It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses to remember that the dullest 
and most uninteresting person you talk with may one day be a creature which if you saw it now you would be strongly temp tempted to worship or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet if at all only in a nightmare all day long we are in some degree helping each other to one or a other of these destinations. It is the light of these overwhelming possibilities. It is with the awe and circumspect proper to them that we should conduct all our dealings with one another. All friendships, all loves, all play, all politics, there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal Nations, cultures, art, civilization, these are all mortal, and their life is like ours, the life of a gnat. But it is immortals with whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendor. I encourage you to not be like me, to not be like any other of your disciples. Be like Christ, who ch chastised his disciples to lift up our eyes and be willing to come and see the work that Jesus is doing in the world around us. Lord God, I pray that you would give us the courage to lift up our eyes. You would give us the courage to see your work in our world. That you would reinvigorate us that you would help us to see past some of the cultural issues of our day. Not that they are unimportant, but people ultimately first need to meet you and encounter you and flock to you. And lives are changed with proximity to who you are and the people whom you have sent. God, help us to be that people. Help us to know who you are. Help us to love you in a way that honors the model we see with you at the well, with the Samaritan woman. May your word not return void in your name. Amen.